0: Let me encourage you to turn to God's Word, open it up, 2 Samuel, we're in the Old Testament still, Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can find it on page 259 in the Pew Bible there in front of you, you'll need it open. We're going to read the second half of this chapter, we covered the first half, last week I said it's a very important chapter, and indeed it is. It's a sweet, sweet season in the life of Israel because David has been made king, and he's united the people of the northern tribes and also of the southern tribes. They are together in uh, Jerusalem, and uh, worship is now uh, restored, and David is there in the city of David. The, the, uh, the mount there is Mount Zion, uh, and it is, uh, it is Jerusalem. At the center of it, we said last week, it's not a, it's not a statue of David like some kings would have been inclined to do. Uh, no, it is the tabernacle at the very center of Mount Zion is The the tent of meeting or the the shrine tent where uh, the the people of God gathered for worship. And that is where we uh, have the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, nevertheless, God, uh, David says, I've got a plan. And uh, I can't believe this, but here I live in this beautiful palace that others have built for me out of cedar. And the Lord and the Ark have no place but a tent. And uh, it was an elaborate tent, but he wanted a permanent house. And God said, well, I I understand you want to build me a house, David, but uh, that's not the plan. At present, he declines the offer uh, because, plus, I mean, I, you know, that does come into 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 uh, into being with his son Solomon. But even Solomon knew uh, and testified very clearly in First Kings eight: the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, Lord. Much less this temple that I have built. So God doesn't dwell in a building. God God can't be contained in a box. Uh, God is is uh, is ever present. The eternal God. But he, he makes a unique manifestation of his presence for the people of God, Israel, in the ark and in the tabernacle. So it's there. And, uh, and in the midst of the plan that we read about in the earlier part of this chapter, David says the plan is that I'll build this. And then God says, well, then there's this play on words. You want to build me a house. But David, I want to tell you I'm going to build you a house and not a house that is of physicality but a dynasty. I'm going to build you a household, and from you will be a king and a kingdom that will go on and on forever. I'm the one that's done these things, and I'm going to make you great, David, and your line, not for your sake, but for the sake of my people, that they might have rest, that the people of God might enjoy peace. That was a promise that God had made earlier in Abraham. That Abraham, you know, that he would bless Abraham, he would be their Lord, that he would make a a covenant promise. When we talk about covenant, we're talking about a a promise, a a bonded pledge that God makes with people. He, He actually condescends, relates to us in terms that we can understand, in part, and says, I'm going to be yours, and I'm going to bind myself to you, and I'm going to fulfill promises. David, you're part of that fulfillment. And David, he's giving him a promise, a covenant here in this chapter. And that promise is going to be forever and for the nations. It is going to be an awesome and beautiful thing. We can't even wrap our heads around it. How do we know that the term eternal is used multiple times in this chapter? That covenant and that promise can't go on. And that line from David cannot be eternal unless one of those lines is a God-man is eternal, is Jesus who has conquered death, hell, and the grave through his resurrection and his death. So it is from the line and from the tribe of David. From the, we'll be singing about it. We'll be talking about it uh, in a few weeks to come around Christmas. We'll be celebrating the fulfillment of a covenant from a Messiah, a king who comes from the line and the city and the tribe of David, his great and greater son. And we'll sing about it, right? Hosanna. Praise be to God in the highest. Angels will sing of it. Shepherds will sing of it. We will sing of it. Children will sing of it. People walking through department stores not knowing anything about it will sing about it. The great Messiah. So out of deference to God's word, I invite you to stand. Second Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to begin reading actually in verse 16. But our focus is verse 18 through the end of the chapter. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, this is through the prophet David's word of God, your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this... Revelation to your servant, saying, "I will build you a house, therefore your servants have found courage, therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, make it, please, make make it, please, you to bless the house of your servant so that you it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, you told us, you promised us that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we pray that right now you would shine. Even now as we are yielded to your spirit, would you be working would you, We know that you've been speaking in the past and revealing yourself. We're grateful that you speak to us through your word and through your son. It's in his name we ask and pray. Amen. Question, how many of you have touched, okay, I'll include a little more. How many of you have touched or seen, not on TV but in person, the Stanley Cup? How many of you? Thank you, Jeff. The rivers? Lonnie, seen it? Lonnie, have you touched it? Has anyone touched it? Touch the Stanley Cup. You've seen her touch the Stanley Cup. Aren't you cool? Some of you are like, I don't even know what the Stanley Cup is. (laughs) The Stanley Cup is, for those of you who don't know, is the championship trophy that's awarded every single year to the NHL, the National Hockey League champion, in the playoffs. It's been going on since like the 19th century, so for a very, very long time. And you'll, you can see it on TV when the, the winners of the Stanley Cup, it's usually some guy skating around with a couple missing teeth and he's holding it above his head and everyone's celebrating and later they all rally together and they drink champagne to celebrate uh, the winning and then they get to, you know, to, to take all these pictures and celebrate. It was a number of years ago down in North Carolina when a friend of mine, he was working for the Carolina Hurricanes, uh, they finally won their one and only, uh, you know, Stanley Cup which is kind of sad because in North Carolina, people don't even know hardly what hockey is. And, uh, and here is my friend, you know, here, here, here he is, and he's, he's celebrating and, and getting to touch the Stanley Cup. And I thought to myself, there are Canadians and New Englanders who would die to do what you're doing. And uh, yet most people in North Carolina didn't even know that our team had won. It is an impressive thing. It's, it's, it's more impressive, though, to consider... By the way, none of you have touched the Stanley Cup because it's actually a, it is a, uh, there, there's a permanent cup and then there's a display cup that is the one that is carried around. I'm sure it's locked up somewhere, uh, the original, the permanent cup, not the uh, the display cup, the presentation cup, they call it. Last week we talked about, it's more impressive Just like artwork, I said, it's more impressive not to look at the cup, but to consider all of the hard work and the teamwork that goes in to earning that cup. And in the same way, we talked about a frame last week. It might be a a beautiful or elaborate frame, but it's, its purpose, its design is to accentuate and highlight the artwork that's inside the frame. And there are times when they're inside of that frame and inside of that artwork is a beautiful thing to behold, a story perhaps. And you could ponder it, and you could study it, and you could stand in awe. But if it's gorgeous, and if it is amazing, it begs the question, who is the artist, like I was telling our children? Who is the artist of this great story? We know the frame, right? We know the, the narrator of the, the book of, of uh, Samuel. We know the main, the main character in many ways is the people of God, the ark of God, the king, David. But David as well is not... The primary thing. David and all of his triumphs over opposition. The the people of God getting to enjoy the blessings and the peace and the unity and the victory of God. And yet the real thing is the artist. David has the the ark. It is the real ark. The only ark. But David has the promises of God. The people of God enjoy the maker of all these things. And David, as we just read... He went in before the Lord. He sits before the Lord. And then, as the chapter continues on near the end, he stands before the Lord. By the way, it's the outline I want us to consider. David is is sitting in humble praise of God. In verses 18, we see it through 24. And then verse 25 through 29, at the end, he is standing before the Lord in a bold prayer because he's standing on God's promises. So that's my outline, a humble praise and a bold prayer. It's an outworking of last week's study, the earlier portion of this chapter in the covenant. How do we respond? So don't just take this as David. This is our cue as a pattern that we might grow and learn from. So first, humble praise. We notice that even with all of the perseverance, uh, the, the great triumphs, this is the greatest king of Israel. This is the greatest king arguably in all of world history. King David, the narrator doesn't record that David went in and, uh, and stood in front of a mirror and, uh, and, and, and admired himself, right? David didn't go in and, and, and gloat of all of his glories. The Bible does say he was a good-looking man, but uh, he doesn't just stand there in front of a mirror. I don't know if they had mirrors back then. But uh, it doesn't say also that he just stood there wallowing in self-pity, of all the things that he has experienced, which is a lot. A lot of betrayal and and sorrow and wounds. He could have sat and just stared at his wounds and said, pity is me. But no, verse 18 in our text is saying it's David who is sitting before the presence of God. And in that presence, he has nothing to say except this. Verse 18, who am I? Who am I, Lord? Who am I in this house, my family? He asked another question in verse 20. What more can I say? For you know your servant, O Lord God. In other words, he's saying, God, you know me inside and out. Who am I? In other words, he's saying, I'm not worthy. You already know me. I'm not worthy of your kindness and and your favor and your blessing. God, I can't earn this. I'm not worthy. When David asks, who am I? It's not some expression of an insecurity. Some, you know, some anxious moment before the Lord. It's a genuine humility that he has. He goes on to say, verse 22, how great is our God? He goes from saying, who am I to look at you? Behold the greatness of our God. Look at you, God. Look together with me, verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. That's pretty remarkable. How does David refer to himself? The great king? Oh, the great king, the great king, the great king. No, actually, it's no less than a dozen times in this chapter that David refers to himself as a servant of God. That's who he is. That's how he... That's how he thinks of himself before a holy and great God. Last week, I mentioned this was one of the most important chapters in all of the Old Testament, arguably the the whole of Scripture, because it contains the covenant that God makes with David, a bond, a pledge that he has. David knows this is not about his merit or his earnings or his performance. It is the graciousness of God that David enjoys a covenant. Verse 21, he chose Abraham, Isaac, he knows this, this promise, because it's on account of not himself, but verse 21, because of your promise according to your own heart. Not David didn't say, oh, look at my heart. Look at, look at me. I know, it, I know it's been my heart, and that's why we find ourselves. No, it is according to you and your gracious covenant promise, David is saying. It was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David's going to be a part of fulfilling this. Exodus chapter 19, God says in his covenant love for people, his people Israel, keep my covenant. I will keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God said to Moses, you go tell them that they are going to be my treasured possessions. No, no, not, not, not just to enjoy that, but so that they could be set apart and holy, that people would know who I am. That they would be different. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to protect you. And I want people in the nations, the nations outside of this, to see that I'm great and one day worship me, the God of grace. Mary gets this, the virgin Mary. The mother of our Lord in Luke 1. We'll probably read it next month. What does she say? Standing in awe of the promise that she will bear the God-man. She says, almost echoing David, who am I? Mary says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, referring to herself. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary said that. Why? Because Mary's great? No. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name, Mary says. Luke 1 verse 49. God has every design to include in the nation of Israel, his people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to include the nations. He wants to build a covenant relationship with others, bringing in a great king and Messiah, Jesus, that the nations would come and be included. Contemplate this, right? David is here looking back and he's looking forward. He's looking back and he's saying, the, the covenant that you made with Abraham, here am I enjoying the fulfillment of that, but we're looking forward to a greater Messiah A forever king and kingdom that Jesus will be. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is Israel. We are the new Israel. Let me say that again. We are the new covenant community. We are the new Israel. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. He freed his people, we read that just now in verse 23, from the bondage of Egypt. Wonderful. Thanks be to God and brought them into a promised land. But he has taken us, the people of God, like, like, like King David looking forward to the promise and us looking back to the fulfillment who is Jesus. And in Christ, he has, he has redeemed us from the bondage of sin with his precious blood to make us a prized possession The very basis and nature of the covenant isn't a contract that God would benefit and we might somehow. It is, it is not like that. It is, it is entirely on the, the basis of no merit in us. It is all of his grace that he relates to us. And the terms of the covenant are not temporary. They are eternal. Eight or nine times I counted that he says this is, is eternal or forever. How can that be? How can there be a king who has a forever dynasty unless somewhere along the way, as I said earlier, there is a God-man who is that king? Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment. Through his death and resurrection, he is the forever king. We should join, friends, we should join David in sitting in the presence of God in awe. We don't have to say anything. We can be in his creation. We can gather and worship. We can can play music. We can can sit, meditate on his word, and then go for, like I enjoy doing, reading his word and then walking and just trying to meditate on his greatness. David here is sitting before the Lord and he is speechless because of who and what? Because of who God is and what God has done. But David doesn't remain speechless, and nor should we. And the pattern here, he goes on in these last verses, 25 through 29, to have a bold prayer. Look again with me. Let's read verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. This is not David uh, reminding a teenager about his chores uh, or her chores. Like, you said you were going to do it. Now do it. It's You said you were going to do your homework. This is David understanding God's character. And he says, Lord, you promised this. So do it. Do it. Please do what you have said. I think we need to acknowledge that part of the prayer here, part of the nature of prayer right there in verse 25 is a response. So prayer, in other words, prayer is not a a formulaic thing that we try to put on or to recite in hopes that God would say, oh, well, now, now I can favor you. Finally, I will shower down the blessings. It's not. It's in response to what is God. Lord, you have done so much. So now, in response, David is saying, do it. Lord, bless me. Bless your house, my house. It'll be your kingdom. David is saying, take my family, take my line, and build from it a name for yourself, as you said you would do. Please do it. David is standing at present here on the promises of God with an eye towards the future eternal kingdom. He knows this would require a covenant mediator, a Messiah that is coming. David knew there was one coming. And honestly, it's going to be so cool in the new heavens and the new earth. I I want to, well, even now, just imagine. David, King David, who wrote all of, you know, so much of the Psalter, all of these songs. What if he were to come and dwell with us in worship today? What if he were to sing the opening song? Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. Who would have thought that a lamb could have rescued the souls of men. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We see what David didn't. David does now. We will sing with him. I just can't imagine it. There's a phrase that I skipped over earlier in David's posture. It's in verse 19. Look back if you would. And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O oh Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this, this is instruction for mankind, Adam, all of humanity. This is instruction. Why would David say that? Friends, the covenant promise of an eternal king and kingdom finds its beginnings with Abraham and David, but it finds its fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you're here today, I want to connect us with David, not in some kind of future way, but right now understanding how this covenant promise is for us, okay? Bear with me. Many of you profess to be followers of Christ. And if you are in Christ, let me tell you That you have this covenant and the promises are for you and for generations to come. The promise is forever and the promise is for us. Let's say that together. The promise is forever and the promise is for us. We're not doing too good on application. Let's try this again. The promise is forever and the promise is for us. Infomercials, right? Right. You, you, this is more of a thing. And my generation as a kid watching TV when there were only like three channels, and there would be an infomercial come on, and they would ha- they would have this this amazing item, right? It's the it's the double diamond blue nonstick frying pan. It's it's amazing. And of course, if you if you call now, you're gonna get not one but two double diamond nonstick pans. Oh, but wait, there's more. If you call now, we're going to throw in the super duper spatula. Friends, there's more. There's more. Wait, there's more. You have the promises of God. The promises of God. This is the very basis on which we stand when we cry out to God in prayer. On what basis do you say, God, I've done so much this week, I've tried so hard. I have worked, I have really done it. I've done some awesome stuff with my emotions this week. And I've done a lot of good deeds. So I've got, I've got a few things I want to cover with you. You ready? Here's, it's just a small punch list. It's nothing major. Listen, God wants to hear from his children all the time. So if that's the only way you know how to pray, then pray that way. But there's a better way to pray. And I'm telling you, it's built on the promises of God. And what David is doing here is setting a pattern for us that we might take the promises of God and say, now do it. You said this. You gave this to us, and I'm here to cash this promise in. And you told me it's not going to expire. And this place isn't shutting down. This is good, and I'm cashing in this promise. It informs the way. And sometimes I know you're thinking, well, that's really hard to put my my mind around. I get it. It's hard. But sometimes it's hard to believe the promises of God because we don't know the promises of God. The promises of God for us which I can say are ours because we know we can go. We can sit with humility, but we can petition and pray like David does here with boldness, because we're told by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1:20 that all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. That is why through him we utter our Amen and glory to God. How does that affect your prayer life? How does it affect your prayer life? to take the promises of God and pray them back to God. It was an old, I think, 17th century William Gurnall. He has a a great quote. He says, prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word formed into an argument and retorted by faith upon God again. I challenge you to learn the promises of God. And here's why, because I think it'll change Some of how we think and pray. You may not be feeling those emotions. That's okay. You're you're in good company because David struggles to believe the promises of God. Go read the Psalms and you'll see the struggle. But there are days that when you're standing by faith on the promises of God, this is what it sounds like. I want you to just envision this if you would. Because David knows that. That consternation, like this can't be true because he's been betrayed, he's been lied to, he's been disappointed, he has been uh, deeply wounded, he's been waiting and waiting and waiting and he's been anxious and he has doubted God. Read the Psalms. But if you're, if you're standing on the promises of God, this is what it sounds like in times of loneliness, you take up the promise of God in Deuteronomy 3.18 when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God, you said that. So show me today your presence, because I am lonely and I am anxious. And then you say to God, in, in your moments of temptation, no temptation has seized me except what is common to man. And you promised that you would provide a way out. You promised that. In times of weakness, we say, Lord, 2 Corinthians twelve nine. your grace is sufficient. Your power is made perfect in weakness. I need your power. You promised your power to me. Help me to see it. Help me to walk in your power. In times of guilt and shame, we cry out, Acts 3.19, repent that your sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In times of grief, we pray, Psalm 34.18, you are near to, you promise God, you are near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. I believe your promise. Help me. So whether it's sorrow or confusion or whatever it is, there are so many precious promises that we can pray back to God. And that's what David is doing here. Cash it in. The covenant promise is forever and it's for us. Back to my Stanley Cup analogy. Our our posture before the Lord Almighty, who alone is great, I read a good quote this week from an Old Testament scholar, Heath Thomas, who says, Listen, we're, we're not, uh, as a people, as, as the new Israel, as the, as the children of God enjoying his promises, we're not role models and we're not glory hogs. You know, we're not, we're not just getting the glory. We are trophies. He writes, works of art that demonstrates God's saving power. No one admires a trophy for having done something great They recognize that the trophy represents someone great. Our lives are supposed to burn brightly with evidence of God's miraculous greatness. And ironically, the more we steep ourselves in the finished work of Christ, the more we find his spirit rising up within us. The fire, and get this, this is my favorite part of the quote. He says, the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what He has done. That's the motivation. What's the goal? What's the aim? In humble boldness, here's the humble praise that we offer to God and the bold prayer that we discuss, but there's more. The fuel of what God has done presses us, it drives us. When we consider our our Savior, our King, presses us in, uh, into our daily work and our calling. So I don't know whether you're a profound teacher or some exceptional student athlete. Maybe you're an adored leader. Maybe you're the employee of the month at your company. Maybe you're a person with special needs or disabilities. Maybe you're a parent of someone who has special needs. Maybe you're a faithful spouse to someone who's really difficult. Or maybe you're a person who's caring for aging parents. Perhaps you're a a foster parent or an adoptive parent. You may be a person who's up front. You may be a person who's behind the scenes. But as followers of Christ, as sons and daughters of God, yet this, we're only servants and we're just doing our duty. But we have promises Not earned promises, gracious covenant promises. And it ought to leave us saying, who am I? Who am I, Lord? And how great you are. Well, it's probably fitting that we pray. Father, please glorify yourself in being merciful to us. Would you strengthen us? And then glorify yourself. Would you forgive us, God, for not taking you, trusting you at your word? Thank you for, Father, your unshakable covenant love. You're so faithful to your promises. We're so grateful that they find their fulfillment in Jesus. Would you teach us your promises? And then then teach us to pray boldly like we see David here. Lord, thank you for answered prayer. On many fronts, you've, you've delivered us, you've spared us, you've protected us. Even against our own foolishness, you have preserved our lives at times. And we're grateful. You've answered prayers of healing. And there's still a lot of people waiting. And I pray as we wait, as we seek you, we would be a people who stand upon and hold fast to your promises. Lord, I thank you for...